Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And the title of today's episode is Designing Women. And Caroline, i got to be honest, when I first started researching for Designing Women, Women in Interior Design... I kind of just wanted you and I to talk about <laughs> Designing Women, the sitcom, for half an hour. I did, too. This is a show that I grew up watching with my mother, in addition to, you know, all the other shows like Murphy Brown and Golden Girls, uh, and, of course, Cagney and Lacey. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I am in love with the Sugar Baker Sisters. Which is your favorite? Oh, Julia. Julia Sugarbaker. Now, for listeners who might not be familiar with Designing Women, let's give them a quick rundown of the show. And don't worry, this isn't going to be an entire show about the sitcom, but we have to indulge our, oh, yeah. our childhood sitcom loves from time to time. So one of the reasons that I loved Designing Women when I was a kid was because it is set in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So everybody had a very wonderful accent. That <laughs> was Julia Sugarbaker. And there were two Sugarbaker sisters, Julia, who headed up this interior design firm. And then, what was her name? Delta Burke played her? Suzanne. Suzanne. How could I forget Suzanne? And Suzanne was a former beauty queen. And she always had something to say that was usually inappropriate. And Julie would use, usually have to step in. Yeah, well, no, I loved, I love, without getting too much on a tangent about just my love for the show itself, Julia Sugarbaker is fantastic for the way that she, at least once a show, goes off on some incredibly amazing rant, standing up for the little guy. Yeah, for people who watch Scandal, Julia Sugarbaker delivers her monologues in the same kind of machine gun staccato as characters do very dramatically on Scandal, which uh, makes Scandal even more enjoyable for me because it makes me think of Julia Sugarbaker. But personally, Caroline, I don't want to be controversial, but Julia was not my fave. No. Charlene was my girl. <laughs> sweet, sweet, sweet Charlene. Charlene always got me <laughs> giggling. Um, so anyway, Designing Women is a hilarious sitcom and also has been cited as a very feminist show for its time. I think mm-hmm. uh, in its original time slot, it ran right up before Murphy Brown. And people are like, oh, look at look at all these working women and their strong shoulder pads. <laughs> Yes, and they're very feathered, hairsprayed hair. So much feathering. Um, but we're going to talk about designing women IRL, not on television today. And I learned that the development of the interior design industry, which is stereotypically very feminine, it is designing women, um, but the way that it was feminized and then professionalized, it it says a lot about how we were grappling with gender roles, particularly at the turn of the century and leading up to World War II. Yeah, it seems like for as for as often as we have talked on the podcast about women not being sort of welcome in the workforce for a long time, especially if you were married and triply, especially if you were married with children, interior design and at the time decorating seemed like an okay and acceptable way for women to not only work, but earn a wage. Yeah. And there was this idea that if you got into interior decorating, as it was originally called, 
that you might not be as interested in your marriage as you should be. So there was this quote from Vogue in 1921. Uh, Someone once said that a woman is either happily married or an interior decorator. And there's still a little bit of that stereotype lingering today, especially when we think of a decorator versus a more serious interior designer, that perhaps these are wealthier women who might be a little bit bored and, oh, well, they're just, of course, they're going to become decorators. And so, of course, because it's us, we have to give you the very colorful rundown of the history of where these decorators came from, how this profession sort of came about, and, of course, where all those kind of nasty stereotypes about both fickle women and gay men in the design industry came from. And a lot of this information is coming from this amazing and very fascinating paper by Peter McNeil called Designing Women, Gender, Sexuality, and the Interior Decorator from 1890 to 1940. And it's really great the way that he touches on not only just the historical, you know, black and white aspects of the design field, but also really digs into some of the sexuality, gender, and femininity issues. Yeah, because the entire construct of an interior decorator is built on it being appropriate for women because of how domesticity and those spaces where we live were gender coded as feminine really starting in the late 19th century and early 20th century. So, for instance, in 1897, we have the publication of The Decoration of Houses, written by Edith Wharton, yes, and Ogden Codman. And with this text, the figure of the capital L Lady Decorator begins to emerge, and she's really cemented in the culture by the time we get to the interwar period between World War One and World War Two. When we're in this cultural flux, when socioeconomic independence really isn't exactly a feminine trait, although, of course, that is in conflict with the development of the so-called new woman. So the lady decorator is a safe space amid all of this, oh, what do we do with women question. Well, not to mention that the work itself of interior design is downplayed a lot by describing it as a natural extension of being part of the female nature, that, of course, we would want to decorate the house, we'd want to arrange flowers and select fabric and wallpaper colors, things like that, because that's just part of female intuition. Leave all of that architecture and building stuff to men with their rationality. And on top of that gendered idea, there's also class that plays on top of that, because as McNeil points out in his paper... This has been an historically overlooked industry from an academic perspective because it was sort of cast aside as a thing for, again, rich, bored ladies because interior decoration, as it was called at the time, really developed thanks to a combination of class, disposable income, and commercialism. In in a lot of ways, interior decoration was compared to high fashion couturiers where you outfit your home in the same way that you might outfit your body. You want all of the latest fashions. You want it to look good and make impressions on the people who come inside. And McNeil says that it wasn't until Isabel Ancombe's A Woman's Touch that was published in 1984 
that interior decoration really started to get some serious analysis and people started thinking, oh, these women were actually making some significant impact in the overall world of art, craft, and design. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating that it took that long to get any serious academic look because, again, it goes along with the whole thing of that work being downplayed and the field being almost invalidated when it comes to women's participation. But uh, Ancombe writes that women weren't just decorating. They were designing as an outgrowth of the arts and crafts movement of the late 19th century. And sort of in the wake of this period, women actually did publish quite a few books on the topic, including that Edith Wharton Ogden Codman book we mentioned earlier. And so this is sort of the the first wave of women actually going out and getting these jobs that are creative. They are sort of artsy-fartsy and are viewed as more socially appropriate for women to have. Um, but that leads us to the question of whether women's participation in a job like this, where it is centered around the home and <laughs> artsy-fartsy stuff, whether that has been liberating in terms of giving them jobs, letting them earn a wage, or whether that's just continuing the cycle of reaffirming gender norms and women belonging in the home. Yeah, so... For some quick historical highlights, obviously we, you know, we, we start writing about this stuff at the turn of the century and early 20th century decorators or designers were really intent upon rejecting dark, heavy Victorian interiors. There really was a lot of change afoot. So the nascent professionalization then starts to breed this tension between architects and so-called designers, the masculine versus the feminine, design versus decoration. And this really starts to bubble up with um, Frank Alva Parsons of the Parsons School of Design, who was instrumental in actually formalizing interior design as a career, which is a common theme that we've talked about a lot in terms of industries such as teaching, where usually professionalization is shepherded by men. So in the 1913 class perspectives at the school, later known as Parsons, it declares interior decoration, like architecture, has reached the dignity of a profession. And in his 1913 book, Interior Decoration, Parsons describes the house as the externalized man. So some notable gendering going on here. So meanwhile, during this time, uh, the sort of superstar interior designer of this period, Elsie DeWolf, writes... In her seminal book, The House in Good Taste, which, let me tell you, you could really have a drinking game to the amount of times that she writes the word taste in the book called The House in Good Taste. You can literally taste the house. You could, you could taste it. The wallpaper it. tastes amazing. Um, yeah, it's like, it's like, uh, Willy Wonka. Yes. Yeah. And she writes in the book, in contrast to Parsons' attitude about the externalized man, I do wish to trace briefly the development of the modern house, the woman's house, to show you that all that is intimate and charming in the home as we know it has come through the unmeasured influence of women. And speaking of Elsie DeWolf, like you said, Caroline, she was a superstar. Architectural Digest calls her America's first 
decorator. And despite the fact that people in her day really wanted to write her off as a frivolous actress turned decorator, she was involved in suffrage and she also described her business as a model for other women. She was incredibly successful. And so in 1905, she gets her first big break with a commission to decorate New York's Colony Club, which was New York City's first club exclusively for very exclusive (laughs) women. And fun fact about her, she spread the word about her decorating business with personalized business cards that were, quote, embellished with her trademark wolf with nosegay crest. I looked for a picture of this and I couldn't find one. I don't know. That's what Architectural Digest said. And <laughs> I want a wolf with nosegay crest so badly now, Caroline. Do you think, do you think the wolf was holding the bouquet or just like had like a wreath of flowers around his head? I or? like to think that it, he was uh, just biting the <laughs> nosegay with his giant claws. Uh, not claws, teeth. <laughs> teeth, claws, same. <laughs> difference, right? They're all sharp. Yes. And in describing the Colony Club's interior, Architectural Digest calls it casual. It has a feminine style. There was an abundance of glazed chintz, which apparently immediately led to DeWolf being referred to as the chintz lady, uh, which I don't think I would like that nickname, but whatever. Um, goes on to describe wicker chairs, clever vanity tables. I wonder what makes them clever. Uh, and the first of her many trellised rooms. And she was such a hit with her design of this all-lady club that she immediately gets all of these other commissions and jobs, and she sort of circulates around uh, all sorts of famous wealthy families. Yeah, and so in 1914, she publishes... The House in Good Taste. And two years later, she's commissioned to decorate portions of the Henry Clay Frick House, now turned Art Mansion, which was probably the most significant commission of her career because Frick was this super duper wealthy guy and he had all of these amazing art pieces and she kind of had to go back and forth with him a number of times because, I mean, DeWolf, when you gave her a budget, would just like take the money and run and buy all sorts of extravagant furnitures and fabrics. And he got a little concerned from time to time about how much money she was spending. And she tried to to let him uh, let her decorate more of the house. And he was like, Elsie, no, <laughs> come on. Um, it it kind of just sounds like any stereotypical conversation between an interior designer and a client ever. But I think that just illustrates that this woman would go to the ends of the earth to find the right chair or whatever. I mean, this she was serious about design. And really early in her book, she writes... I know of nothing more significant than the awakening of men and women throughout our country to the desire to improve their houses. Okay, well, I, I mean, I can think of some things that are more significant than that, but no, that's good. Like throw pillows? <laughs> tassels? Caroline. All the tassels. Now, no, I mean, she she very much took it seriously, and... The thing is, like, it was okay and it was expected for Elsie DeWolfs to take this kind of stuff seriously because of all of the gendering embedded in this. And this is something, again, that Peter McNeil really breaks down in that paper we cited earlier. Because, I mean, when you look at the development of interior decoration, it's not just 
oh, well, it makes sense because of domesticity and we expect that to be a woman's place. It wasn't just that. There was also ready-made fashion and commercialism that McNeil writes sexualized the house as an extension of the female body that women are, are obliged to care for and dress up. So you also around this time have the rise of department stores that facilitated and in some ways democratized for people who couldn't hire, say, an Elsie DeWolf to come and do it for them, who facilitated this entire industry. And so women then become both the consumers and the objects of consumption. Yeah, and of course, other critiques come into this because along with the rise of ready-made fashion So fashion's becoming cheaper and more accessible, but also with the rise of the moneyed middle class. So not only is stuff more accessible, but you have more money to buy more stuff. Then you start getting these critiques of feminized decoration, uh, design and fashion where your people are just saying, well, women are just it's just part of their mercurial uh, fickle natures that they want to change fashions all the time. And so even Leisure Magazine said, you know, like, hey, ladies, we've got this familiar feminine urge to change things all the time. And so that just sort of became part of the stereotype of how women designers and consumers worked. Familiar feminine urge also to me just sounds like a euphemism for menstruation. <laughs> or, <laughs> is your familiar feminine urge back, ladies? Buy some throw pillows. <laughs> That'll help. And you see all of this gendering, though, reflected also within the arts and crafts movement and the growing architectural industry at the time, where you have women's intuitive design or, and, and color schemes really positioned as female in contrast to men's logic, rationality, and neutral masculine color schemes. We could go off on a tangent at this point about the great masculine renunciation that effectively muted colors and, and flamboyant styles out of uh, male wardrobes at the time. Um, but there was a publication on the magic of color harmony in dress from 1927 that said, the fascinating woman is she who is clever enough to emphasize the charming contrast between herself and man, and what better opportunity has she than dressing and choice of color? So even color itself and the enjoyment of color is coded as feminine. Yeah, I remember, was it on TLC or HGTV? There was a, one of those home, early home design shows where it was entirely based around this like really soothing kindergarten teacher type woman designer who would bring into your home like a color wheel that was full of like natural things like a red pepper or like bark from a tree. And you would pick like, oh, what, how do I want my house to feel? And it was all about feelings and colors. It's not like we have ever gotten away from that feeling and that idea that women and color and color choices and how they feel, that those all go together. Yeah, I mean, even when it comes down to art, apparently there was an idea that, that drawing was more male appropriate because it's, it's literally linear and more precise, whereas painting was more feminine because it's more colorful and open to more abstraction. Yeah. And what did they say? That same source talked about how, like, it's more appropriate for a woman to sit there with her watercolors when she could be helping someone paint a wall in the actual house. Well, and we see this 
gendering of these interior spaces very much still alive and well today with things like man caves. And there is also a Wall Street Journal article reporting on the men's design site, Trunk. And that's Trunk with no U, only consonants. And the the reporter writes that Trunk is specifically targeting men due to, quote, the off-puttingly feminine world of design magazines like Elle Decor and most interior stores. Caroline is shaking her head. Ladies and gentlemen, shaking her head. Well, okay. For one thing, all of the stuff that's featured on Trunk is stuff that I adore, like the styles and and the decor and the fashion and everything. Like I love it. It's I respond to that, and um, I I also feel that it's kind of silly that like in a world where we have to have gendered lotion at the drugstore and shampoo for men. Um, that we also have to have design websites for men. I, I get why someone who considers themselves to be masculine might be off put by a website that is clearly dedicated to, I don't know, like pastels. Well, yeah, pastels or florals or, you know, things like that. Like I get that. But it just, the whole thing seems really absurd to me. Well, it just seems like shouldn't we be past the point of gendering pastels or gendering leather? Yeah. I mean, I think that plenty of people, whoever you are, respond to light colors or dark colors or like a fluffy down couch versus a, you know, a straight lined leather couch. Or just, you know, a good old fashioned beanbag chair, Caroline. <laughs> yeah, but I love there was one quote in the story about that, not to get off on attention, but I'm going to. Um, There was also a, a line in that article about trunk where it talked about how like, oh, God, and like so many of the homes we visited, like all these dudes had globes. And so it really seems like. Like, you know, men just want to decorate with things that are like, you know, like rational and logical and that can be used in real life. And I'm like, OK, what's old is new. We all use Google Maps. OK, nobody uses a freaking globe. So it is not logical or functional. And then I just flip the table over and walk away. Although I do like to think of in lieu of Google Maps, you just drive around with like a globe in like a, <laughs> one of those like car seats for children. You have the globe strapped in. Um, but... The thing is, though, we've been referring a lot to interior decorators, which was also a very gendered choice to call it decoration as opposed to design. But that would soon change because the title of this podcast is Designing Women. People go to school for interior design. So we're going to talk about how that came to be when we come right back from a quick break. It's interesting to watch how things change in interior design or decorating um, as the field becomes more professionalized, just like, as Kristen said, in other fields, whether that's teaching or whether that's the coffee industry. There's a whole slew of things that happen when things in, in a particular industry start to get professionalized. People start forming professional groups and organizations to encourage basically the shoving out of anyone they perceive to be an amateur. Well, notably, the very first professional organization for interior designers was started by women, hence its name, the Women Decorators Club of New York. And it was founded in 1914. And then some male decorators at the time got together and were like, hey, we need an organization too. So they formed the Society of Interior Decorators. And then finally... In 1931, 
we have the gender neutral American Institute of Decorators, which was really formed to uplift the industry from depression era doldrums and attract more respectability, emphasize professional qualifications. And it was really attracting men in particular from more well-established firms rather than, say, Elsie DeWolf types who made fabulous business cards and were working independently. And so then in the 1940s, in the post-war period, as men are returning from World War II, that's when we see even more professionalization of the industry, which leads, like always, to even more masculinization. There's this influx, basically into the conversation, into the industry, of architects. And then we see the rise of industrial designers. And during this period after the war, there's really an emphasis on specialization, marketing of the profession, and the development of professional standards. And so you've got all of these men coming in and they're focused on a lot of the time that commercial design, not so much what drapes, you know, Mrs. Smith wants in her home. Oh, Mrs. Smith. She is the toughest customer. So demanding. She's always changing her mind, Caroline. And don't get us wrong. We are not against men getting jobs. We're all about some employed fellas out there. But as Pat Kirkham notes in her book, Women Designers in the USA, 1900 to 2000, a lot of this came at the expense of them sort of taking over the leadership, for instance, of the American Institute of Decorators and pushing more female decorators to the side. So in the 1950s and afterwards, you really see women increasingly pursuing residential design. Stay in the houses, ladies. We'll take over the skyscrapers. And then with the rise of interior design divisions in large architectural firms, men usually held the top jobs there. So they're essentially building a bit of a glass ceiling, although just beautifully designed glass (laughs) ceiling, Caroline, is gorgeous. Yeah, and so this leads commercial design to becoming really a boys club that women have to fight extra hard to make their way through. And I remember, so for the longest time, I wanted to be an interior designer. I don't know. I'm not exactly sure where the idea came from. I want to say it was just growing up watching a whole lot of TLC. And designing women. And designing women. Maybe you wanted to be Julia Sugarbaker. I think I wanted to be Julia, but I never saw them work. They were either out being the Supremes on stage, if anybody remembers that episode, um, or they were just in the house talking. And so I think it was, I think it was those early home design shows like Trading Spaces. But when I actually did shadow an interior designer for a day just to kind of see what she did, she herself had a business running out of her home. Um, and she sort of burst my bubble because my whole dream was like, no, I will work. On an individual basis with like individual clients in my, in my head and my dream job and I will make their homes beautiful. And she was like, uh, you've got to go to school for a long time. You've got to work really hard. And then you kind of do have to come up through the more commercial stuff before you can sort of break out on your own and establish your own firm to where you are being an Elsie DeWolf and working with those smaller clients. Probably unless you have very wealthy and well-connected friends who are down to let you redo their pool house. Yeah, who trust you with their credit card, basically. Yeah. But yeah, I was like, I don't want to design an office, nor do I feel like I would want a job that's not recession-proof, because it was during the recession. So I gave up that dream. 
now I have designed myself a beautiful desk space and a be- and how stuff works and a beautiful podcast. Caroline. That's right. You know, Caroline, you could always do an interior design podcast. That's true. I so I'd be like, and then I really like purple, but also blue. That's cool. <laughs> so maybe I'll stick with this one. Um, it'd be called a room of one's own, <laughs> starring Caroline. Um, but so going back to before I got off on a tangent, sparked by the idea of commercial design being a boys' club uh, that I would not want to fight my way through personally. Just just me. It's during this time after the war in the 1950s and 60s that decorator, the term decorator really becomes kind of a, an ugly term. Nobody wants to be called a decorator anymore because as things are getting more professionalized, people were saying, oh, well, calling yourself a decorator, thats that could be somebody who comes into your house to paint or wallpaper your walls. But really, there was there was a little bit more to it than just saying like, oh, a designer would be a more accurate term. Well, these guys didn't want to be called decorators, period, because that was a lady's job. We had the lady decorator established, you know, in the early 20th century. So I have a feeling there was some ick factor with that. And also there was this concern for keeping the more amateurish and intuition driven women out of more lucrative areas of the field. And Kirkham writes about how The feminine, in quotes, and domestic qualities that had led this people in this industry to argue women's particular suitability to interior design at the beginning of the century were now ignored, as was women's experience as homemakers. So decorator was out, interior designers was in, and Frank Lloyd Wright, by the way, once publicly sneered at an AID event about inferior desecrators. Yeah, apparently he just went on and on about it until the woman, he specifically named one specific female designer. I believe it was Dorothy Draper. Yeah, and she... Not related to Don Draper. (laughs) Ha ha. And she actually stood up to sort of physically put a stop to his anti-woman rant, essentially. Inferior desecrators. Yeah, that's like such an eighth grade. Yeah, such an eighth grade burn. (laughs) Um, So we're going to take a massive leap now, though, and look at the industry today, because, like it or not, Frank Lloyd Wright, inferior desecrators make about $30 billion a year as an industry, and it is still very much female dominated. An article over at interiordesign.net uh, reports that women outnumber men in the field around two to one. And that's in stark contrast to those stats we were giving in our podcast on women in architecture a while back. Yeah. And the reasons why it is so popular with women today really might not be that different from why it attracted so many women in the past. I mean, in the past, it had given so many women who were sort of living off the beaten path anyway, whether they were coming out of the arts and crafts movement, whether they didn't really want to get married and they just wanted to work. It sort of gave them a path to earning a living and having a respectable job, essentially. 
And so New York School of Interior Design professor and author Judith Gura suggests that the popularity of this field with women partially has to do with the fact that the industry allows women to take time off to raise families and that the barrier of entry is lower since licensing isn't necessary as with architecture. So you're not necessarily in school and working toward a license for as long as you would be if you were going to be an architect. And on the one hand, that's great. And on the other hand, too, that gendering still seems largely intact, uh, at least as reflected in a quote from designer Barbara Berry speaking to the website Interior Design, who said, I've never felt the glass ceiling. As a woman, I feel uniquely suited for design centered around the home. And in talking about how there are few and far between female architects, you know, those all-star architects, the list of marquee female interior designers is, quote, nearly endless interior design reports. And this is something you can see reflected, too, over at El Decor that has gallery upon gallery of incredible female interior designers like Charlotte Moss, Holly Hunt, Muriel Brandolini, Josie Natori, and Jill Stewart, among some of its female favorites. But when you start looking at this list of names... And we start thinking, oh, well, okay, cool. This is an industry that seems it was built up around women and still remains pretty female friendly. But when you look at these lists of all of these successful female interior designers, it is great that this is an industry that really has been built around women and still seems very female friendly. But at the same time, too, a lot of the lists also make the industry seem pretty not diverse. I mean, yeah, women, yay women. But is it all just white women? Well, I think so much of that goes back to class issues from the very beginning. I mean, who was paying for interior decorators? The new white upper crust, middle class and up, uh, you know, people who were oil tycoons, railroad tycoons, people like that were paying for designers and the people they were seeking out because it was a female dominated field tended to be women. And because of just the way that class structures were set up, those women tended to be white. They weren't these wealthy oil barons weren't out searching for women of color to come into their homes and decorate because those jobs simply weren't open and available to women of color. Well, and I think that phrase right there, come into their homes, mm-hmm. says a lot, too, because I have a feeling that from what we know about racism, that this idea of someone of color coming into your home, into your private space, would be verboten for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And this is a sentiment that's echoed by renowned designer Sheila Bridges, who is speaking to The Root about it. She says design has always been a pretty elitist profession, so there have definitely been challenges along the way, and... Many of them have had to do with being black. And she references the complexion of the industry, which she says remains basically a hurdle for a lot of young black designers. But she thinks that things like, you know, what I'm obsessed with, HGTV, basically shows and the Internet and designer collaborations that are making design more accessible to a whole wide swath of people are helping kind of open young people's eyes to 
career possibilities or even just hobby possibilities that that there's more out there for them to do. Yeah, and and she goes on to to echo exactly what we were talking about just a moment ago about how African Americans haven't had what she calls a long history of being professional designers, mainly because we only just recently gained the luxury of choosing it as a career. And it was interesting in this interview that she was doing with The Root, uh, the interviewer mentioned that they had talked to other prominent black interior designers before and asked them the same question of, has race ever been a barrier for you in your industry? And they all just declined to even answer the question. It seems like it's still diversity is still something that is swept under the very expensive carpet. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure, you know, there might be an effort there not to other yourself. Yeah. Basically, if you're already feeling like such an outlier in the industry that you've chosen, um, you might not want to focus too much on what sets you apart, but more about what makes you such a standout talent. Yeah, and and, and she was very encouraging, Bridges was, for young black students interested in design to go for it and network their way in and but but still being cognizant that yeah there probably are going to be some extra hurdles along the way and i got to tell you caroline i was also really surprised that this was one of the only even blog posts independent blog posts uh, i could find even addressing this issue of diversity ethnic diversity within the interior design field. And perhaps I just wasn't looking in the right places, but I, I almost wonder if it's, if it if, is even a concern. Well, I think again, so much of that goes back to the clientele and what names they're familiar with, especially from their other fellow incredibly wealthy friends. And that if somebody uses one designer, they might pass that name along. And so there's a lot of like, Maybe the, the perpetuation of the same type of designer or, or literally the same designer. And there hasn't been as much room for, for newbies, people with different perspectives to come up through the ranks. But then again, it's not like there's black design versus white design. Well, yeah. And that was something that Sheila Bridges definitively said no to, where the root asked, well, you know, is there a particular, you know, black design aesthetic and she was like no no good design is good design yeah let's not make this like a, a race thing at yeah. all um well and i i also though wish that we could have found some statistics too comparing diversity within residential design versus industrial design because i wonder if the image or if the picture would change at all when we're looking more at commercial properties businesses public spaces versus private spaces. Um, but speaking of private spaces, one rather surprising area of diversity among early women interior designers that we've been talking about, particularly in the first half of this episode, is when it comes to sexual orientation. I assume going into this that this was going to be, you know, straight white, wealthier women. But it turns out that what Peter McNeil terms homosociality was very common among the earliest interior decorators, women like Elsie DeWolf, who was Boston married to Bessie Marbury. They had one of the first open, quote-unquote, Boston marriages, which was essentially like, let's not call them lesbians, 
in New York society. But it's interesting that a sort of lesbian designer stereotype never developed. Instead, we do still have the rich, straight, white woman stereotype paired with the very effeminate gay man stereotype. And, I mean, people were writing, even back in the 30s, there was one thing we saw where uh, some man... (laughs) Some man was writing about fears of both fickle women and gay men ruining what he called real art, that we have to take it back from them, basically. Yeah, I mean, the the gay male interior decorator stereotype uh, emerged really in tandem with the lady decorator stereotypes because all of those kinds of things of interest in home decor and domestic spaces and the use of vibrant color was so deeply coded as feminine that any interest in those kinds of things and in commercialism and consumption was also coded feminine. So if you were a guy who had a knack for it and really enjoyed these kinds of things. Well, you were a quote-unquote effeminate man, or you might have even been labeled a pansy. And there was a lot of mistrust of you, particularly starting in the interwar years. He was seen as sort of the counterpoint to the frivolous flapper. You have the effeminate man who is carrying all the shopping bags next to her. Yeah, but it's funny because just like how high heels originated as a man thing... So did interest in beautifying your home. I mean, back in the 1800s, I mean, if you were a wealthy man, you wanted to demonstrate your wealth. And so you wanted to pick the most luxurious fabrics and finishes for your home to sort of demonstrate that. And that sort of has all gone away to the point where people write about, oh, you know, stereotypical husband just being a guest in his wife's home because she's the one who takes over all the decorating and the shopping. Well, and nonetheless, though, even with all of that stigmatizing of men, gay or not, who were interested in decorating and designing, nonetheless, within the industry, they were still more broadly respected than icons like DeWolf and Dorothy Draper. There was still more room and acceptance for gay men like Billy Baldwin than there were for an Elsie DeWolf. Not being in the industry at all, but watching a whole lot of home and garden television, I want to say that attitude still persists somewhat today. I mean, if you look at the Nate Burkuses of the world, who is super accessible thanks to his stint on Oprah and having a target line, and then somebody like Vern Yip, who was a, who's a total design superstar um, and has lived in Atlanta. I don't know if he still does. Wasn't he on Trading Spaces? Yes, he was. Ah, loved Trading Spaces. I know. Now he's like he's always in HGTV magazine, also, which I'm always excited about. But it it seems like we just kind of look to the gay male designer in our lives, whether that's in the pages of a magazine or in real life, to to give us the the true and correct fashionable design advice, as opposed to trusting a, a lady designer. Well, because according to stereotype, he would offer us the best of both worlds. He has, you know, the the rationality of having the male brain, but also the more uh, effeminate design intuition to be able to execute a a well-appointed room. So it's this episode to me is just 101 in how entrenched gender norms have become in a very short amount of time. It took about a century for us to just be like, oh, you like color? Okay, you're either gay or you're a woman. You like flowers, gay or a woman. Like, what? 
Yeah, there's no room for a straight man to enjoy color or flowers or decorating. Well, and that's what I wanted to find, too. Uh, in terms of diversity within the industry, I know that there are straight male interior designers out there, but I wonder if they are sort of the odd men out. Um, so really relying on listeners for this one. Curious to know what the status of these kinds of identity politics are within interior design, or maybe does it just not matter? Are you just more collectively interested in the design itself? Let us know. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you. Well, I've got a Facebook message here from Sophie, and she is responding to our podcast on social justice warriors. And she writes, Hi, I just wanted to thank you for your episode about social justice warriors, specifically Tumblr users. I feel like any platform that is mostly used by young people gets miscredited and questioned, so I get dang proud when I see teenagers using trigger warnings or hashtagging food during Ramadan, being so respectful to each other. I'm pretty sure they didn't learn that from parents or in school. They teach each other, and it's brilliant. Tumblr is an awesome place because people of all genders, sexualities, colors, and nationalities are allowed a voice. It allows for beautiful things like Blackout and Trans Visibility Day to fill my feed and remind me that my reality is not the only one. Thumbs up to the podcast, and please excuse grammar or spelling. I'm Swedish. (laughs) So thank you, Sophie, and your spelling and grammar was fantastic. I have a Facebook message here from Crystal. She says, hi, I just started listening and love the series. Well, hello. Thank you. Uh, she says, I just listened to your hunting podcast, and it got me thinking about my last trip that I want to share with you. My boyfriend and I were out in a field in 20-degree, windy, stormy weather for about eight hours looking for geese. After freezing my bum off whenever I had to pee and struggling to keep my clothes dry, I started looking up female urination devices, or FUD. I mean, how amazing not having to drop my pants in cold weather. The interesting part, though, is that when I mentioned it to my boyfriend, he responded that it was weird and I was, quote, not invited to future trips if I didn't pee like a real country girl. I haven't had a chance to test this, but I now have every intention of busting out an FUD next time we head out. Anyways, this got me wondering whether there's been a podcast on these devices and the privilege of peeing while standing. Well, yes, indeed, we do have a potty politics episode that would definitely interest you, Crystal. Yeah, and I got to say, Caroline, for a summer music festival season and all that, I want a FUD. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sitting down on the, ugh. nope, not gonna do it. Nope. So, uh, if you have any female urination device related thoughts <laughs> or things about interior design you would like to let us know, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with all of our sources so you can follow along, head on over to stuff mom never told you. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 